It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It began last week. More than a hundred days since the war in Gaza began, and a new front has opened up more than 2,000 kilometers away in the Red Sea. The US and British military have launched strikes against targets in Yemen, areas of Yemen controlled by the Houthis. The joint military strikes were in response to nearly two months of attacks by the Iran-backed Houthi movement on cargo ships in the Red Sea, disrupting commercial shipping and the global economy. In a White House statement, President Biden said they were sending a clear message to the Houthi rebels who've been attacking trade ships. He says that they have endangered U.S. personnel, civilian mariners, and jeopardized trade. The Red Sea shipping route is crucial to global supply chains. Tesla has paused production at its Berlin factory. Next and IKEA have warned that the availability of some products could be affected and costs could rise. The rebels have been attacking commercial ships for almost two months now, disrupting global trade in response to Israel's war in Gaza. The Houthis say such attacks are in support of the Palestinians. We renew the warning to all Israeli ships or those affiliated with the Israelis that they will become legitimate targets. While there's no UN mandate for the coalition's strikes against the Houthis, the UK has called it an act of self-defense, which is legal under international law. Russia called the strikes an Anglo-Saxon perversion. I want to be clear that these were limited strikes. They were carefully targeted at launch sites for drones and ballistic missiles to, to degrade the Houthis' capacity to make further attacks on international shipping. I can tell the House today that our initial assessment is that all 13 planned targets were destroyed. The Houthis are undeterred. They've sworn to continue their attacks despite Western airstrikes. So what happens next? Do America and the UK have a plan B? And is the war in the Middle East about to become a much bigger international conflict? The lights are absolutely flashing red, as it were, on the global dashboard. 
You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, who are the Houthis and why is the UK bombing them? I'm Dr. Elizabeth Kendall. I'm an Arabist, a Middle East specialist, and I'm also the mistress, that is the head of Gerson College at the University of Cambridge. It's a great title. Elizabeth, you have been watching Yemen and and the Middle East for, for many years. We've all become very aware of what's happening in the Red Sea at the moment. Everyone's watching it very intently. But it's actually been happening for a few months now. Tell us, what was your reaction when the first... Houthi attack happened back in November. I remember very well when that first Houthi attack happened. The resort town of Eilat on the Red Sea was targeted by a drone. The IDF confirmed they shot it down. And it really confirmed everything that we'd been worried about for the last almost decade. The Houthis as early as 2014, were known to have discussed the option of taking control of the Red Sea, of of this being the main way to get at the international community. And it seemed that, okay, finally, this was going to come to pass. And there had been previous incidents of the Houthis harassing ships, or firing drones and missiles at targets uh, not far from the Red Sea, certainly up into Saudi Arabia. Uh, there'd been over a thousand drones and missiles fired at Saudi Arabia during the course of the war. But this seemed to be turning a page, and indeed it has. It's so interesting that you th- you think they've wanted to do something similar f- since 2014 for as long as that. You you know the Houthis very well. You you've you've been to Yemen many times. You've spent time with them. Just to give us a sense of your connection to the region. I mean, tell us about a particular meeting in 2015 when I think you were addressing 260 tribesmen. Is that right? Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, I was helping conglomeration of tribes in Yemen to get themselves organized, to take back control of their governance and their future. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Not just because they felt that the government at that time, the formal government, was relatively inept and also corrupt, but also because they were afraid of incursions by extremist groups, and in particular al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So I found myself in this rather odd situation where they'd actually asked me to come and survey 10 of the provinces in the east of Yemen. This is in the far east of Yemen. And to relay the results of my survey to them, to actually find out what do people want, how do they want to deal with their future, 
and how might we make that happen? So I found myself in this situation where I'm sitting at the front of a massive hall with hundreds of tribesmen, all of them wearing Kalashnikovs and trying to explain to them in Arabic how their survey had gone and what they might want to do. <laughs> Was that mildly terrifying? Do you know, uh, when you look at it now, uh, it, of course, it seems insane. But you very quickly get used to danger when you're in the field and, and it starts to become normal. So, yeah, perhaps I had sweaty palms at the beginning of it, but I was so busy trying to concentrate on what I was saying that uh, you soon forget about it. It does mean that you have a rare insight. Uh, a lot of people are playing catch up at the moment and trying to work out who the Houthis are uh, and how they came about as a, as a force in Yemen. So I should just say that the tribal meeting that I was addressing was on the other side of the country. Mm, in the east. In the east. So they weren't Houthis. And this is what's so interesting, is that the Houthis are very much their own bosses. They have their own identity. And this is how they came about. Because the Houthis are a religious, a political, and a military grouping that emerged in the northwest of Yemen. They take their name from their former leader, Hussein al-Houthi, who was killed in 2004. And their current leader also has that name. His name is Abdul Malik al-Houthi. But they're not just a tribe. They're much more than that. Religion plays a very important part in their identity politics. They grew out of a movement called the Believing Youth back in the 1990s. And this is a Shi'i group, fundamentally, and their branch of Shi'ism is called Zaydism. That's slightly different from the kind of Shi'ism that's practiced in Iran. But today, they're much more than just a Shi'i group. They've got Sunnis amongst them, and they control territory in which about two-thirds of Yemen's population lives. That's about 20 million people. So wow. What emerged as a group fighting back against its marginalization, its religious, economic, political marginalization, has now really evolved into the main powerhouse inside Yemen. And tell us a bit about that, because, you know, you've been visiting the country all the way through. You've been talking to tribes across the country and you've watched the rise of the Houthis. Just describe what was happening in Yemen back in 2014 when they really sort of came to global attention. Maybe we should go back a bit further. In 2004, the Houthis actually got into a cycle of wars with the government in Yemen. And there were six wars between 2004 and 2010. And then, of course, the Arab Spring happened. They put down their weapons. They joined in the revolution and hoped to get something out of it. But things didn't really work out in a way that changed anything inside Yemen. And I remember when we used to hear gunfire, when I was uh, hanging out with the tribal representatives whom I was traveling with, they would just joke and say, oh, that's the war in waiting. And it occurred to me that everyone just thought there was a war waiting to happen. So it was no surprise to most people inside Yemen when the Houthis in September 2014 swept through the capital, Sana'a, took power and then started to move south. The barracks of the 6th military zone in northern Sana'a lie in ruins. This is the only army base that has put up a fight to defend the Yemeni capital. After a week of heavy bombardment by Houthi rebels, the base surrendered. And it was in 2015, early 2015, that Saudi Arabia entered that civil war at the request 
of the internationally recognised government of Yemen to push the Houthis back. And that's been going on ever since. And for Saudi Arabia, it's a very sensitive area because they are direct neighbours. They certainly wanted to protect their own southern border, but they also wanted to prevent Yemen from fragmenting completely and therefore becoming a failed state. They wanted to push back the Houthis, to reinstate the internationally recognised government. And perhaps most of all, they wanted to contain the growing influence of arch-rival Iran in the region. And on that front, especially, the war backfired on Saudi Arabia. Iran's influence grew. Now tell us about that, because, you know, as you say, they are aligned to Iran. They seem to have Iranian backing. Do we know exactly what that relationship is? The Houthis have a lot of common aims with Iran. They're both Shi'i entities in a predominantly Sunni Middle East. They both want to push back against Saudi hegemony, Saudi control in the region. They're both anti-America and they're both vehemently anti-Israel and have a desire to essentially wipe Israel off the map and liberate Palestine. So they've got a lot in common. And during the course of the civil war in Yemen, the Houthis were pushed ever closer to Iran. They didn't have very many options. And although Iran wasn't the game changer at the beginning of the war. But as the war dragged on, of course, the Houthis need to replenish their weapons. They need to have intelligence help, training help, and they got ever more sophisticated weapons. And this came from Iran. So Iran now is a game changer for the Houthis. So Iran has become an important backer. Do the Houthis take orders from Iran? Do they tell Iran whatever they're about to do. If they're about to carry out an action, do you think they're asking for almost permission or, may, or, or just alerting Iran that it'll happen? So I don't think it would be correct to think of the Houthis as a direct proxy of Iran, perhaps in the way that Hezbollah in Lebanon might be considered a more direct proxy. The Houthis are their own bosses. They would not take direct orders from Iran unless they felt that this also played to their own interests. And this is almost a a moot point, however, because their interests do align currently so closely with Iran. But the point here is that even if Iran wanted to rein them in or stand them down, they probably couldn't because the Houthis have discovered that these attacks, particularly these ones in the Red Sea, have proved a very effective strategy. They've won them publicity, They've won them glory, they've won them popularity, and they've won them concessions in the ongoing talks for a Yemeni-Yemeni settlement in the civil war. That's interesting. So this isn't Iran pulling the strings. This is a move that the Houthis, as you say, have wanted to do since 2014. Given that it's been an ambition for so long, though, just talk us through the trigger here. Talk us through why the war in Gaza, you know, 2,000 kilometers away for them, is, is such a trigger for action. You have to bear in mind that the Houthi slogan now for at least two decades has been death to America, death to Israel, a curse on the Jews and victory to Islam. So when we have a situation in which Israel, with the support of America and other allies, is pummeling Gaza and images of maimed Palestinian children are crossing their TV screens every day. 
they feel this is a call to action and to make good on that slogan. So there are two elements here. One is this one that I've just described, this ideological element of genuinely being seen as the heroes, the defenders of the underdog in Palestine. And there's also a heavy dose of political opportunism at the same time. This came as a real opportunity for the Houthis because it helped them extend their popularity at a time when perhaps their base was pretty tired after nine years of civil war and at a time when not just in Yemen, but more broadly in the Arab world, people were looking for someone to stand up for Palestine. This suddenly brings them massive attention and popularity. And of course, it's helped them in the UN-mediated talks to win further concessions out of Saudi Arabia as it tries to exit the Yemen war. And then finally, internationally, the Houthis are able to ensure that the rest of the world feels some kind of consequence from Israel's actions in Gaza because they're impacting global shipping. And that's important because they didn't want this, this conflict in Israel and Gaza to just be a faraway problem for us. They wanted to bring it home. Coming up... Is the UK being dragged into another Middle Eastern war? And what do the attacks in the Red Sea mean for all of us? That's in just a moment. But if you're enjoying this podcast, I just wanted to make sure you knew that there is more of it. Every weekend, Time subscribers can catch the latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's our new behind-the-scenes series on Apple Podcasts. It's just for subscribers on the Stories of Our Times feed. And if you want to work out how to find it, just log on to thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts. You're in for a treat. So we've got the Houthis waging war in the Red Sea in order to show their anger over Gaza, but also to draw international attention to the urgency of the problem and also to, to raise their own profile in a way. And then in the last few days, you suddenly have America and Britain fighting back. There's been a retaliation. There have been airstrikes over Houthi targets. How will that have played out in Yemen? And amongst the Houthis? I think this has played to the Houthis' advantage, ironically, because it justifies their ongoing narrative of the US, the UK, and their allies as the aggressor. It's a question for them of the imperialist West waging its war against the Muslim world. And it's one thing exchanging missiles and fire over the Red Sea. It's quite another bringing this to the landmass and therefore, as they would see it, violating the sovereignty of Yemen. And, and it actually worked quite well for them timing-wise too because the strikes happened very early. The US and UK strikes happened very early on a Friday morning. Friday is, of course, the holy day in Islam. People have Fridays off. They go to the mosque. Massive rallies had already been organized. 
it gave the Houthis an opportunity to milk the strikes for all they were worth by having a rally of perhaps up to a million, possibly even more people in Sana'a on that Friday, where the Houthi leader was asking rhetorical questions like, who just bombed your country? And the crowd shouts, America, who's the enemy? America. So it was, wasn't excellent timing on our part. And certainly mm. we're likely to see more repercussions from it, greater retaliation, rather than having it act as a deterrent. As someone who knows the Houthis uh, as well as you do, you know, you've just pointed out this isn't going to be the deterrent that we were told the airstrikes would be. Have the UK and the US, have they got this policy wrong? The US and the UK are in a real dilemma. There are no easy options here. Naturally, they were running out of options. They had tried sanctions. They'd tried hampering the flow of funds to the Houthis. Diplomatic efforts were probably a non-starter because we just don't have any leverage over the Houthis. And the multinational maritime force that they had put in the Red Sea wasn't really proving enough of a threat to stop the Houthis from their aggression. So it didn't look like there were very many other options. And I guess they felt that taking out some of the launch sites would send a strong message. Now, I mean, the problem is that, that that really isn't going to be the case, because if you look at history, the Houthis have suffered over the past nine years of their civil war, 25,000 plus airstrikes by the Saudi-led coalition, and it didn't deter them. So us now doing strikes against them probably won't deter them either, and they'll have been smart enough to hide at least some of their systems. And we have to also remember that they do operate, the Houthis do operate by a different kind of logic. It's not a pure military logic. They feel that they have justice and right and might on their side. They believe that God is behind them. And they're very confident because they feel they've won their internal civil war. They've already transformed their status before their opponents, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, from being a terrorist entity into being a recognized political interlocutor. And they just don't care how many casualties are suffered on their side. And they've watched the West fail. They've seen what happened in Afghanistan as the United States uh, withdrew ignominiously. And the fact that we didn't do that well in Iraq either. So they're feeling pretty strong. This is not a group that can be deterred by military strikes. Is there also a chance that we could get caught up in a bigger regional conflict? There's a real danger that we could get caught up in a broader conflict. There are lots of ways this could go wrong. Uh, and, and probably chief among them is accident, miscalculation, that sets off a chain of events which just spirals us into an all-out war, tit-for-tat, going global, if you like. And I think that we have to understand that the Houthis, they have known only war now for around about 20 years, if we go back to their original civil wars in 2004 onwards. They've had a couple of years off during the National Dialogue and the Arab Spring, but mostly it's just war. And that means that anyone living in their territories who's around the age of 20 will have known 
almost nothing other than war. So for them, war is a way of life, whereas for us, it's a last resort. And we, we have to therefore see that this is not something that they necessarily want to go away. And could this go beyond the region? There are many powers who would benefit from the US, UK and allies becoming mired in another conflict in the Middle East. And chief among those, I guess, would be Russia and to some extent China. Russia and China have already come out with statements that criticize the actions of the US and allies in bombing targets in Yemen. And it feeds into their narratives of the US as uh, the world policeman sticking its nose in and flexing its muscles over areas that it has no jurisdiction. So we could be empowering our allies and we should watch for the kind of disinformation and misinformation that such powers might be pumping into the internet to try to stir things up for us. I think if there is one game-changing action that could happen going forward that could knock the region into a conflagration, it would be if airstrikes continue by the US and UK and inadvertently, owing to poor information, they end up striking civilian targets with all of the optics and footage that would come with that. I think that would that would really stoke anger and could set off the rest of Iran's axis of resistance. Do you think an alternative policy that we could be pursuing, the West could be pursuing, would be to put more pressure on Israel to call for a ceasefire? Would it take away the calls for the Houthis or do you think these Red Sea attacks are here to stay? So I think there are other things that we could do. I think that we could possibly try uh, a little harder with the mediation using partners like Oman, who have good links with the Houthis. We could perhaps ramp up more indirect military action. After all, we do have special forces. And we could be supporting local forces in Yemen to, to perhaps make good their gains over the Houthis. But I don't see any of this working without approaching a solution to the Palestinian problem, because this is what gives the Houthis their, as they see it, moral high ground. This is what justifies their actions before the eyes of the Arab street. So making an effort to get to grips with the Palestine-Israel conflict that's been ongoing now for many decades is a sure way to start taking away the popularity, the justification and um, the reason for these attacks being launched by the Houthis. Mm. And in the meantime, as these attacks continue, you know, as you said, they're very alert to the fact that the Red Sea does give them international prominence. Just explain why it's so important and the global impact that, that this current branch of the war is having. Well, the Red Sea is a choke point and that choke point is really controlled by the Beb al-Mandab Strait, which is a small strait at the corner of Yemen, which opens into the, into the Red Sea. It's a mouth to the Red Sea. And of course, the Red Sea then goes up to the Suez Canal. That is the shortest and cheapest way to connect Asia and Africa with Europe. 
via the Mediterranean Sea. So it's absolutely vital for the free flow of trade. And there are about 17,000 ships that pass through the Red Sea annually. That equates to about a trillion dollars worth of goods. 10 to 15% of seaborne trade and about the same in oil and gas. And that matters to the UK in particular because 95% of our trade arrives by sea. So at the moment, we've got a situation where some of the world's biggest shipping firms, container shipping firms, are rerouting around Africa and that's increasing their costs massively and their time. So that has knock-on effects on supply chains, on what we will see in our shops and eventually on our pockets. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Arabist, Middle East specialist, and the mistress of Girton College, Cambridge, Dr. Elizabeth Kendall. You can find all of The Times coverage of the situation in the Middle East online at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producers today were Priyanka Delardia and Taryn Siegel. The executive producer was Fiona Leach and sound design was by Mao Lissetto. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, if you felt you learned anything from it, then please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again tomorrow. <laughs>